You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. I'm Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high-quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. I want to tell you guys a story that happened to me this past weekend. Long story short, just to get right into it, is the hunting since moving to the middle of urban Texas and Austin has been very difficult um, apart from a few vacation days that you get you know throughout the year with your employer it's not easy to get out during the weekend I mean it's a six-hour drive to just the most southern part of Oklahoma where I used to hunt so it's been very very tough you know but it's really only driven my passion for the outdoors further into more of an obsession and this last weekend um worked on the way to Stillwater um drove up there for seven hours got there went and scouted um a spot up near Kansas so about nine hours of driving it's a pretty tough day uh went to sleep that night after hanging out with some friends and woke up the next morning we had about an hour and a half drive to our spot and about a 30-minute pack-in. So um, as, you, as you can tell, that's a, it's a very early wake-up time. And I woke up at 4.30 after driving those eight or nine hours the day before and really didn't want to go. I really didn't want to go hunting because I was really tired. I knew that we were going to go, be going to a homecoming game. There's going to be a lot of social obligations with all of our friends and a lot of people hadn't seen us in a while, but I told myself that these are the kind of moments that you you dream of at work every day when you're, you know, scrolling through the internet, looking at pictures of deer, or listening to the next big whitetail podcast, or trying to figure out what's when you're going to be able to hunt again. And I was like, if you don't wake up, this is your moment's going to pass by, and you're going to really regret this. So I got up, I woke my buddy up, and there we went. Uh, we were on our way. Both had climbers. He had borrowed a climber from his uncle. Um, I had I loaded all my stuff up in his truck. He thankfully offered to drive. We stopped and got some morning coffee, some cheap espresso, which is always the best. Oh, I had that gas station espresso, put that in my thermos, and we went on. And, you know, it's... It's one of those things you're driving an hour and a half at four o'clock in the morning and you start to get a little weary and tired but as soon as we got there that was quickly replaced with a little bit of excitement um put my bag on the front of my chest because i had a really big backpack the same one i used for elk hunting and i put my climber on and hung my bow around my neck it looked like an absolute goober but it's what you got to do so we tracked through two winter wheat fields um, back into this thicket that bordered some some private land, and it's about a 900-yard walk, so a little over half a mile. And it got heavy at the end, um, but we got set up. We got set up in the tree. Uh, there was a bunch of 
little twigs sticking through these trees and my buddy carol couldn't get more than 10 foot up off the ground so um it was getting light very quickly i was about 15 foot up he was about 10 foot up and we were in this v-shaped tree and i was like carol you're just gonna have to deal with it so he posts a snapchat of him being 10 foot up in the tree saying let's see what happens and so we waited and i knew the spot was gonna be good because it scouted the night before but we sat and we waited and we waited and got dark about or got light about seven and you know here about eight thirty, you start to you know when, the, when that first day of the season when you catch a glimpse of something like a movement and you're like oh it's back hunting season is back well i caught that glimpse i caught that glimpse of a little bit of movement and i look to my right very slowly and i see a coyote starting to come in off the wheat field it's always interesting watching coyotes or any kind of predator walk on public or private land. They just they kind of walk, you know, silently and slyly, and they're very alert, they're very attentive. And so I watched him walk, and he walked in slowly. He stopped and looked, walked in slowly a little bit more, and stopped and looked. And so I stood up when he was walking in. I stood up and I I drew I drew my bow when he was about 25 yards. We had stopped behind a tree. And I was like, huh, I think he just saw me. I think he literally just saw me. So I stood in full draw. And I start going through these processes in my mind. I shot my bow probably over a thousand times before preparing for elk hunting, preparing for whitetail hunting. This is mid late October. I've this is my first time being able to get out and hunt. So I'm like, man, I really don't want to mess this up, even if this is a coyote. I'm not gonna get a, get to get out much this year. So I got into full draw. I'm just going through my processes. You know, I'm just, you know, corner of the mouth, hand on the jawline, nose to the tip of the string, finger around the around the trigger. Don't punch the trigger, pull the trigger, pull your elbow to a shelf behind you. And my pin initially when he took that extra step, and there's always that moment of relief right then when something takes the step that you needed, he took that step and I was right on the front part of his leg. And I, you know, and, and I saw the growth as a bow hunter right here. I mean, this is a, t- a moment where I typically would have just shot before. I'm on him, my my arrow, my sight is on him. I'm gonna hit this animal, but I waited. All my brain went went into autopilot. Like I'd done this so many times before, and I, I focused on my technique and my form this summer, really doing an overhaul. And I got and I settled right behind his shoulder, and I pulled. And it pulled, and it was only about a, a second and a half, two seconds, but it felt so smooth. I shot, and boom! You know, 500 grain arrow in a rage, hypodermic. It looked like someone took a hot knife through butter. He, he ran about five steps, and it was <laughs> yelled about two times, flipped over, kicked one time, and that was it. So he ran about five to seven yards, and I saw a massive hole in him, and my arrow sticking you know eight inches into the ground and it was so satisfying i mean in the whole the whole ride home that's all i thought about it's like a well-executed shot i would literally drive those those 16 hours round trip just to shoot that coyote one more time just to be able to get out um to the woods on public land one more time and it's really been interesting to watch the the navigation as from a someone that could get out every weekend you know thursday through sunday to someone that who doesn't someone that only hunts saturday 
someone that has truly turned into what a lot of people would call a weekend warrior. And I don't want to be those things, but you know, it's, it's put so much more weight on practice, so much more weight on, on being prepared, you know, cause now I can't make up for those missed opportunities with the amount of time that I spend in the woods. Now it's just, I have to be ready in those opportunities when they present themselves. I have to be crystal clear in my mind and ready and have my process down and, and release a clean air. And I did that last Saturday. I mean, I know that I posted a pic on my Instagram and it's just, just a coyote to many, but to me, it was a testament of what's to come this year of how, how changing and, and practicing and then constantly focusing and trying to get better and learning how I've improved as a bow hunter already. And my confidence, that's what it affects the most. My confidence absolutely through the roof. Now I'm going hunting this weekend, Friday through Sunday. And I, I'm, I'm literally, I'm so confident you know, even if it was a 20 to a 60 yard shot, I just feel like my release is smooth. My bow is tuned and I'm very confident mentally. I would just encourage you guys to practice, to get out there and do put in the work, whether it's physically, mentally, or emotionally, or go out and shooting your bow, whatever that looks like for you, it's going to be absolutely different than me. But for me, it was out being disciplined and practicing and I know that those things are going to have such a tremendous effect on my season. Even though there's highs and lows of bow hunting, I know that the season is going to be a good one regardless, and it's already a success, if, even if only the only thing that I kill is a coyote. Uh, but I just thought I'd take a few minutes to tell you guys that story. hope you guys' bow season is going well. Um, feel free to message me if you have any questions about the story I just told or if you want to, if you want to maybe talk about bow hunting or share with me some pictures of your season so far. I'd love to love to talk about it, but let's get to this episode. This week on the podcast, we're talking premium fixed blade broadheads with the co-founder of Iron Will Broadheads. Started it with uh, another friend of mine. So I'm the, yeah, the original you know, design engineer um, for the product and, you know, spent several years kind of designing it. And then a friend of mine that I met up you know, in the mountains hunting, um, had a marketing background and the two of us decided to come out with a broadhead and make it a, a business together. So is this your full-time gig now? Is this what you do day to day? It is. It is now. Yeah. That's awesome. So what led you guys to creating the broadhead? What was the, the problem that you were looking to solve from the beginning? Yeah. So I moved to Colorado about 20 years ago, started elk hunting then, um, you know, I actually grew up in, in Wisconsin hunting whitetails. So, but anyway, moved out to the mountains, started hunting elk, um, you know, worked really hard to get that first shot. Took me a few years actually. And when I got a nice shot, uh, when I got a shot on a nice bull, I ended up hitting too far forward, hit the shoulder blade, um, broadhead failed, got very little penetration. And, uh, man, that was painful to, you know, to wound that great big animal after I worked so hard to get that shot. And, uh, and yeah, I just, uh, just felt terrible about it. And, it, you know, at the same time, um, I have a mechanical engineering background. I've been working as a, as a product development engineer, um, in my you know day job for many years already by then. And so, you know, I started taking a real critical look at, 
at the broadhead I was using and the broadheads out there, I could see the failure modes um, and just decided to start applying some mechanical engineering to, you know, initially just test and find a better broadhead to use for elk. Um, and then, and then after a couple of years of, of testing different broadheads, I decided to just design and engineer my own at that point. So what kind of, not brand, but what sort of broadhead were you shooting that, that failed on you? And what were the, what were the issues with the design and that kind of broadhead? Was it a fixed blade and expandable or what failed on you? Um, it was a fixed blade. It was, um, like a three blade chisel point type head. Um, you know, the, the ferrule just wasn't very strong. Um, my guess is that, you know, hit that bone, um, and just, you know, just bent over, um, that'd be my guess because yeah there's very little very little penetration there so i don't know if the blades broke or the ferrule bent over you know something like that i think occurred um so yeah and i just as i started really looking at it yeah the blades were pretty thin you know thirty thousandths or so 420 stainless steel they bend or break pretty easily um ferrules were being made typically very often out of 7075 aluminum some of them were were stainless steel, but it was typically a, a softer steel um, in thinner sections than when they're stainless steel. So, you know, it, it didn't take me long to realize that, yeah, these things, if they hit heavy bone, are going to bend or break. And so I was really after something that would make it through that shoulder blade on an elk, say, um, pass through that, you know, not bend or break, slice into the vitals. And really get a pass through is what I was shooting for. Um, stay sharp and give you, um, you know, make it a quick kill on those shots rather than wounding an animal and making it, you know, a nightmare. Taking that design and seeing what the the weaknesses were, what then did you design? So from an audio perspective, we can't. I know we can just go look at pictures for someone that's driving to work right now, listening to this podcast. Mm-hmm. How would you describe the differences between? You know, those three blades with the very thin blades that, that crumple a lot of the time to, to what you guys have engineered at Iron Will. Yeah, so, you know, I'd always been kind of a three-blade guy. and But when I started testing different broadhead designs and looking at penetration, what I, what I realized is that like a two-blade cut on contact would far out-penetrate a three-blade, you know, chisel point type head. And prior to that, I never really used them or shot them, but that started me down the road of looking at kind of a two blade, you know, one big main blade, um, triangular shaped main blade basically. But what I saw on, on many of those is that they're pretty long and the, t- and the tips would be, um, you know, get kind of thin. And that was kind of the weak point. They would, a lot of the tips would break hitting, hitting bone on bone impact. Also, they didn't fly that well if they're too big, too long. So, um, you know, what led me to the current design I have now, which is basically it's, it's a, it's a two blade with bleeders. So it's got a, it has a main blade, um, you know, starts it at one angle and then it changes. So there's a, a second angle at the tip, um, that's sharper and that brings that tip back. So it's shorter overall length. It also strengthens up that tip. Um, and you know, I kind of came up with that through empirical testing, but also just through like finite element, analysis, computer analysis, looking at stress strain on the, on the blades. Um, but, and yeah, and then a much thicker blade. Ours are 62,000 thick. Um, 
steel blades where most blades out there are in that 30, 40,000 range. And then, um, yeah, I didn't initially have the bleeder blades just because I was going for a max penetration. But after shooting those for a couple of years, um, my brother, my brother Tim um, was working with, with me a lot on this. He shot a lot of animals with them at that point as well. And um, we just saw occasionally get a poor blood trail without the bleeder. So we ended up adding a bleeder blade. It didn't, it didn't um, reduce penetration very much, but it opens up that hole and does a nice job there. So the kind of the, the general design evolved to that point. And then I spent a few years going through different materials, trying different blade steels, trying to get one that would hold up to um, a heavy bone impact, but yet still be able to get a very sharp edge and retain that edge. And, and that's when I initially started with some stainless blade steels, but really if you get them hard enough to hold um, a very sharp edge and they get pretty brittle. And so I was, I'd snap those uh, or break or chip those on heavy bone impact. So I ended up moving to tool steels and, you know, iterated through about five different steels till I settled on a A2 tool steel, um, which is, it's typically used for metal stamping dies. So it's used to, to cut other metals. It's, um, it's very tough, but you can also get an excellent edge. It's used by high-end knife makers um, for, you know, high-end custom knives as well. Yeah, one of the cool applications that I've seen uh, about you all's broadheads in particular is that you can you can just go in and resharpen the blades after you shoot an animal, which is really really nice. Because and if you have the lifetime warranty too, then the the broadheads theoretically should last you a, a super long time. And you can do that instead of having to replace blades. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And and typically, I mean, our our blades hold an edge well enough. Typically, you can shoot through an animal with it, clean it off, make sure it's still shaving hair, and put it right back in your quiver. I mean, that that happens a lot, where you can get, you know, multiple animals without even touching it up. But, um, you know, if, if you've hit some bone, hit some rock, you know, um, then, yeah, you can just touch it up like you would, uh, like you would a knife blade. Right. So, in... We sell a couple different sharpeners for doing that. Um, we've got some videos on our YouTube channel of different ways to do that. But if you have a way you like to sharpen your knife, um, you know, like a Lansky or Gatco knife sharpening kit or KME, um, there's lots of different um, knife sharpeners out there. But yeah, those those work well on our blades to just get that edge back and, and keep using it. And and we have lifetime guarantee. If you bend it or break it, we replace it. So. Yeah, they cost more up front, but, you know, you should be able to keep using them. Yeah, I think that's a really unique thing that you all are doing in the broadhead space. Um, you know, you have a lot of fixed heads that they won't shoot right or they won't fly right and a lot of expandables that you really have to count on them deploying and opening to work. You know, I had a situation happen to me, you know, last year in the elk woods where I broke three shock collars on some broadheads and I lost an arrow before I even got to the spot and I was down to one arrow and I was three to four miles from the truck, you know, and one of the things about fixed heads I like is that they, they just work. Um, you know, there's no compromise with them, but you know, in your opinion, what do you think the difference is in a fixed versus an expandable head? And why do you think the fixed heads are more superior? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a few things there, but you know, one of them is the failure modes, as you were touching on a little bit. You know, fixed head, like our broadhead, 
I've tried to take all the failure, all the possible failure modes out of it. Whereas with the mechanical, you have where, yeah, it could, it could catch on something just sneak, sneaking through the grass maybe and, and open up. Or when you shoot, it maybe hits some grass or a twig and it, it opens up. So there's some things there that would make it not fly very well on the way to the target. Um, when it hits the animal, there's a lot of energy required to open up that mechanical head. I did some, uh, I did some testing recently where I had a fresh moose hide um, that a friend of mine gave me, and I measured the force to push down through that moose hide. And with our, um, with an iron wheel broadhead to push through, you know, it's a pretty thick hide with hair on it. And then an inch of foam to push down through that. It was about 12 to 14 pounds with an iron wheel broadhead. Or with, uh, with a couple of the most popular mechanical broadheads, I was seeing it get up to 160 pounds to start, to start cutting into that hide. And then it was actually crushing the foam beneath it. So a ton more energy is required to open that broadhead up and if you're shooting a big animal like a like an elk um it might just you know hit the high hit the rib and and stop um depending on your system and how much energy you have and how far the shot is things like that so i mean that's a potential failure mode and then you know if you if you catch the shoulder blade or back edge of the shoulder blade it it might stop as well um you know those Wide blades are pretty thin. They bend fairly easily, um, and they can just bend and, and suck up a lot of that energy right there. They can also break. You know, when I've shot them through shoulder blades on elk in particular, typically the the blades are pretty badly bent or broken um, on a mechanical shooting shooting through a shoulder blade and. And so, um, and, and the ones, the blades that did make it through, the edge was pretty well gone. So you're not really slicing very well at that point. You're kind of tearing tissue. So yeah, to me, the, the expandables just have a lot of potential failure modes that you take away with the fixed head. Um, so yeah, so, you know, fixed head, much less force to penetrate, um, and it, it's going to depend a little bit on the design and the size of the head, but you know, with, with the iron wheel head, much less force to penetrate. You're going to get a lot further through the animal, probably double. Um, you're going to get an exit hole very likely. Um, and you know, those things are, are pretty key, especially on an elk where if you, if you get halfway through and get one lung, it, it can go a long ways. It might not even die, you know, and if you can get through that second lung, get that exit hole, you know, it's going to be a quick kill. So yeah definitely always aim for a quick and humane kill i've seen a lot of times where the broadheads don't open and it's a very long and painful process for the animal so love what you guys are doing in terms of that yeah so how have the broadheads performed in terms of marginal shots maybe nicking the shoulder you guys have any cool you know customer customer testimonials to back up the product yeah, I get I get photos and stories sent to me every day uh, recently with people just um, you know amazed by the penetration they got, and a lot of them are are shoulder blade hits where they're getting um, getting pass throughs on on big animals like elk. Even they're getting complete pass throughs with including one or both shoulder blades. Okay. So yeah, that and that's I mean I, I love seeing that. That's what I spent years working on is to try and 
make people successful when they had that shot. Because, you know, I like to aim, you know, you know, the crease there. I like to aim in front of that crease a little bit or near that area, just in the, kind of in that golden triangle that's made up, um, you know, by the shoulder, the shoulder bone, the leg bone. It, I think you hit a little further forward there. If you're not hitting bone, it's just going to be a quicker kill than if you hit hit back a little bit. So. Mm-hmm. And if you're shooting in that area, you're you're just pretty close to bones. And I think a shoulder blade hit is going to happen sometimes. Um, you know, especially if the animal drops or you know turns turns a little towards you or something like that. So, yeah, you know, we've had um, a friend of mine just just got a big mule deer buck that had a double shoulder blade hit plus ribs on both sides, got a complete pass through, and that animal was down in in ten yards. And this particular guy was shooting um, mechanicals a year ago and said, you know, I would have just wounded and lost that buck with that hit. Um, and, and yeah, I just got another, another guy, another friend sent me a video tonight of his bull and he shot a quartering on, on his bull elk and hit smack in the middle of the shoulder blade and, and got through it and had a quick kill. And I think, you know, there's a lot, lot of, uh, a lot of success stories I'm getting that I think would have been, would have been not successful, you know, with other heads. Third party validation is always great, um, you know, to affirm that you have a great product. But one thing you had talked about is the ability to take a frontal shot on an animal. You know, what has been the results on something like that? I've done it on, um, I've done it the other way around on an elk where it was, it was an, it was an elk that it was, it was walking slowly and kind of an arc away from me and so the angle was going from you know slight quartering to 45 to a little bit more as i shot and it ended up slicing through the you know the hind quarter really um on its way in and it went all the way through passed through the heart and stuck out between the front shoulder and the brisket so that was a full length on a on a six point bull um and I've, I've had a few other people send me photos where they took frontals on, on bull elk. And there's a couple of posts on Instagram, I believe, where, it yeah, they got a frontal and it stuck out. You know, one of them stuck out a foot or so out of the hind quarter, right out of the kind of the ham there. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's been happening full length. Um, and, you know, I like that. I never considered the frontal a shot, you know, five to ten years ago. Um but it's a pretty good shot if you're close enough, especially on an elk. I think it's a good, it's a good shot with, with a strong fixed blade because I think you do run into that potential problem of if you're a little bit right or left, you can catch that. You know, you catch some bones there, so you want to be able to, um, to go through those as well. So to pump this big fixed blade broadhead, are you wanting someone to pull a lot of poundage, shoot a heavy arrow, shoot an arrow with a lot of FOC? You know, what's the ideal config for shooting a head like this? Yeah, you know, it's going to depend on the on the person and what their, you know, what their physical ability is and size. Um, you know, I shoot um, I shoot seventy pounds, have a thirty inch draw, so that that's pretty nice um, to get a good amount of. Of energy there and I think people in general are better off going with a little bit heavier arrow um, you know you lose a little speed there but you retain momentum um, and the reason the reason is your bow is a little more efficient so you get have a little more energy right as the arrow leaves the bow and then also um, the drag on the arrow is proportional to the velocity squared 
So a very fast, light arrow coming off the bow is going to slow down quite a bit more than a slower, heavier arrow. So if you're shooting your targets out there, say 40 yards or 50 yards or something like that, that fast arrow lost more momentum on its way there than the heavy one. So, you know, you get more retained momentum with that heavier arrow set up and, and penetration is really going to just be dependent on your mass times your velocity just before that arrow hits that animal. Um, you know, mass times velocity can, gets converted to force over time. So the more momentum you can remain, re retain, the more, you know, if it takes a certain force to penetrate that animal, it's going to have that force for a longer period of time, get further for the penetration, basically. So <clears throat> now what's that right weight? You know, it depends. I like, um, I currently shoot about 500 grains. I've, I've crept up from, you know, 425 several years ago to 450, 475, and I'm at 500. Even a little heavier, I don't think is bad. Um, it's just I pick a weight that I can also shoot very far because I I like to shoot um, like total archery challenge events in the summer and mm -hmm. and things like that where, um, and, you know, they're just a lot of fun. It's a, it's a ski hill. The shots are 60 to 128 yards, I think they were this year. And so too heavy of an arrow um i just can't shoot that you know even with a slider sight um oh yeah my sight's bottomed out so i understand <laughs> yeah, that bottoms out at that point um but no I, i've had excellent results with a 500 grain arrow this year my um elk i shot a bull elk it was um a 52 yard broadside shot it um it went through and literally stuck six inches into the dirt on the other side of them it was, it was slight quartering away. No, no bones were hit. I, I guess ribs were hit, but that was about it. Um, just a slight quartering away, just zipped through them and stuck in the dirt. And then he ran back. I had ranged two trees before he came into the opening, and he ran. He ran back and and was right behind this tree that was 67 yards away. Um, so I didn't have to range. I dialed my sight quickly, and I I put a second arrow through him at 67 yards steep quartering away and the, the exit hole in those two arrows were like two inches apart through the opposite shoulder um and that second shot actually cut the shoulder blade a little bit and that was also a complete pass through at 67 yards on a big bull elk um so yeah that that um that weight for me has had um has had great penetration with with our broadhead yeah, you know, on one podcast, you had talked about stiffness of the arrow. Could you maybe go into a little bit more detail on why that matters? Yeah, so, you know, as I mentioned, I often recommend a little heavier arrow, but um, we can talk a little bit about front of center too, but a little a little bit, um, you know, you don't want to be low on front of center, kind of a medium to high, I think, um, or medium to moderate, you know, is good. Um, but the problem people often get when they try to add a little weight or add a little FOC is they want to use the same arrows from last year and mm -hmm. just add more point weight. And so um, it's very important to first not be underspined. You know, if, if you are underspined, if you have too much weight up front for your, you know, for your bow poundage, your length of your arrow, you're going to get um, too much flexing of that arrow as it comes off the rest and arrows aren't going to fly well especially with fixed heads. Um, but even with um, field points or mechanical, you've got all this, all this motion going on. You, 
you know, if you get a close shot, your arrow's probably not even going straight yet. Um, but you've just lost a lot of energy from this extra bending back and forth. So, yeah, first make sure you're not underspined. You want to be optimally spined or a little bit stiff um, even is what I would is what I would recommend. And and often the it could be a bit of a problem. Often the arrow charts don't account for the different things people are doing, you know, up front. You can get weight up front different ways. It can be the broadhead weight, 100 or 125 or, or up, but they can also do it by um, a different insert. Um, we sell these impact collars that go over the arrow at 25 grains. So a lot of times just the arrow chart doesn't give you all the information you need. You almost need to use some kind of a software like Archer's Advantage or something like that to, to really analyze your setup and see are you optimally spined. Um, you can do some of this empirically as well. You can take your, you can, um, yeah, take your arrows and buy some field points at different weights and, and shoot some groups at, at distance and, and see how they're grouping for you. Because often if you're going, if you start getting underspined, um, you're going to be shooting poor groups as well. Yeah. So spine is the stiffness of the arrow and it's, it's really a measurement of how far the arrow deflects if you hung a certain weight from it. Um, so 500 grain would be 0 0.500 inches deflection with a certain amount of weight, you know, hung hung from the middle of it if you're supporting it, you know, out at the ends, basically. So if you think about it that way, um, a 250 spine is, is twice as stiff as a 500 spine, or it's going to deflect only half as much. Um, so, yeah, very important. And I see that a lot, that um, people are, are underspined. And... Yeah, I don't know if, if they used to shoot, um, it, you know, there was such a push for um, high-speed arrows many years ago, and I think it's kind of coming back the other way now, but yeah, there's a, a number of things, and I've done some posts on my um, Instagram as well, you can look back um, in late August to where I've, I've said these are the issues you can have if your fixed, fixed heads don't shoot as well as your field points. You know, take a look at these different things. And, you know, a big one is the arrow spine. You do not want to be underspined. You know, that's a problem. Um, you know, some of the other ones, you don't want to have, you want to have enough fletch on there. Um, so with a, with a fixed head, you just have more area for pressure to act on the head and be able to push it off, off center. Um, and so you want to have enough fletch to kind of counteract that, that fletch at the back pulls the arrow back and, you know, keeps it going straight. Also, so what I, what I see sometimes is people are shooting these really little target fletches and they're shooting and they're, and they're straight or maybe one degree um, because they want to just get as much speed as possible and, and reduce drag, reduce weight. And, and you really don't want to do that. With a fixed head, you want to have enough fletch back there. Um, you know, something like the size of, of a blazer vein uh, works well. Blazer Vein or AE Max um, Max Hunter are similar, kind of similar size. If you want mm -hmm. a lower profile, like a Max Stealth um, or a Heat Vein, or um, um, you know, there's there's others that are about that size as well, with a little lower profile but a little bit longer. Those are all good. I recommend um, at least two degrees offset or helical. You know, you want to get that arrow spinning. When that arrow spinning. It has a rotational momentum that keeps it on track and it takes more force to kind of push it off track. And so you get a little wind gust, uh, you know, blade of grass, whatever. Um, 
it just doesn't have as much of an effect on that arrow if it's spinning, if it's a little heavier, um, and if it has enough fletch in back, it will quickly correct if it's if it's knocked off course, say as well. So, yeah. So I mean, those are a few things you want to make sure your arrow and insert broadhead are spinning true. Um, a lot of times, this is a problem with with inserts, or sometimes with with you know with arrows as well. But um, you know, get yourself a little arrow spinner. They're pretty cheap. You can you can spin the arrow, see if the the point of the broadhead is staying right at the same spot, or if it's like wobbling all over the place. And if it's if it's swinging a big circle around, that's gonna that's gonna catch some air and um, and throw you off as well. Um, so yeah, those are some definitely some things to take a look at. Archery is a much more complicated sport than I realized when I got into it. Um, but transitioning from that, uh, the biggest knock that I've ever heard on a fixed head broadhead is they don't fly straight. I used to shoot some broadheads that shoot would shoot several inches to the left and several inches low, and that kind of turned me off to fixed heads. But you know, how do iron reel broadheads fly compared to that of a field point, and do they require very much tuning? Yeah, let me tell you one more story while it's in my head is that I just went on a mountain goat hunt. I drew a mountain goat tag in Colorado. And just before leaving on the hunt, I put this on my Instagram story as well. I shot three-shot group at 100 yards with two field points and a broadhead. And it was literally a one-inch group out there. And Oh, wow. And, I mean, so it is possible. I, I can't say I can shoot that group all the time, but it was a great confidence builder as I was just leaving driving out, out west to the mountains for that trip. Um, but I do have a target out at 100 yards on my range here, and I try to put a few arrows into it with broadheads on every day. And it's a 20 by 20 square target. And um, yeah, I, I shoot really well. I put that in, I put that in, you know, not close to the edges. I'm putting it pretty well in the center of that on a regular basis with fixed heads at long range. So, and, and there's a lot better shots than me out there. So I'm just, just going to throw it out there. It certainly can be done. Now, it requires a tuned bow, and I think that's where a lot of a lot of people kind of um, if people have issues with with um, fixed head broadheads, it's typically a lot of times it's a spine issue or it's a bow tuning issue. Um, you can get field points to hit to group okay with a poorly tuned bow. Not always, but you know sometimes but when you um and so what i mean by tune bow is that arrow needs to be needs to become straight off of the needs to become straight when it's coming out of the bow you know if it's coming out of the bow and the and the back end of it is is moving away right at the front end um the flexors are going to catch air and you know bring that back but you're going to get some kind of um either fishtailing back and forth or purposing up and down if your bow is not tuned and when you do that with a fixed head, now you're now you've got that more area for that pressure to act, and it's going to be more likely to push it off, um, off, you know, off course, right or left or up or down. So it becomes more critical for that arrow to be coming straight when it comes off, and then start you know start rotating, and then and then really um, there's nothing that's really going to push that broadhead to push it off. Um, you know, wind gusts things could could do that kind of thing, but so that's why it's it's kind of important that your bow is tuned and the arrows are coming straight off your bow. And it's relatively simple to do. I mean, I can buy a new bow, um, set it up, and in about an hour or so, 
you know, have it pretty, pretty well tuned and, and shooting well at long distance. Um, but I think people could do themselves a big favor and just learning a little more about how to tune a bow. Um, you know, personally, I'll, I'll shoot through paper. Um, you know, you'll, you'll first kind of set it up, um, you know, set up center shot in the right place, you know, set your knock height, right. Um, and then, you know, shoot through paper and see, are you, you know, you want to be tearing a bullet hole at say, you know, 12 feet away from the paper. Um, and if you're tail, if you're tearing tail, right, left, up or down, it depends on the bow, what you do then, if you, if you yoke tune or, or move a rest or, or what, so I'm not going to get into that kind of detail, but, um, you know, learn for your bow, um, or through your archery pro shop, you know, how do I, how do I adjust this, get it tuned in and get that arrow coming straight, you know, off the bow. Um, so I do that as kind of first level paper tune. And then I'll also shoot uh, a bear shaft at 20 yards along with, a a fletched shaft, um, with, with just with field points on it too. And if they're hitting, like they're hitting the same point and they are, um, you know, the shafts are parallel and hitting pretty close together then I know, Hey, this arrow is coming straight off my bow. Um, because with the bear shaft, no fletch to correct it, it's just going to hit that target about the way it's coming off the bow, you know, if it's tail right or left or whatever. So that's just kind of a little a more kind of finer, finer tuning you can do. But if you get those two things down, um, man, I think you'll be impressed on how well you can shoot fixed heads, um, at pretty long range, pretty long ranges, um, for sure. And, and so on my mountain goat hunt, um, my first shot was 70 yards. It was, a it was a, it was a broadside shot. You could see he was going to, he was going to go up through the saddle into the cliffs. I had to make, make a quick decision. Do I take the shot? I felt really comfortable at that distance. Um, but you know, as always, I, I, I drew back, kind of went through my sequence. Does everything feel good? Feel steady? Yep. Squeeze it off. And, and man, I hit right where I wanted to. It was just maybe an inch or two in front of the crease, right through the meaty part of both shoulders. I saw a little puff of white hair come off right by the crease there. Um, it ran back about 30, it ran back about 30 yards. And even though I felt I had a good shot, um, if I get a chance to do a follow-up shot, I just want the animal to die as quick as possible, you know, inside if possible. And mountain goats can go into some nasty terrain where it's really difficult to get to them, right? Oh, yeah. So, I ranged at 99 yards, dialed my sight, and put a second arrow through him at 99 and just dropped him right there. And so, and that, that was in some, in some crosswind even. So it's, that's why I think, I mean, I'm not an advocate of taking 100 yard shots at all. Um, you know, 70 yard shot, if you're proficient and, and you shoot a lot, you know, I shoot broadheads every day. And so, you know, it really is going to depend on the person and how much they've practiced and, and, all, and all that. But um, I do like to be able to take that long follow-up shot. And so that's why I want, and, and really that was part of the design of this broadhead as well, to not only get max penetration on a big animal like an elk, but to be able to shoot accurately at long range because, you know, really out west big game hunting, um, my shots are longer. I, I haven't had a shot under 50 yards this year and I've taken... Uh, you know, a nice antelope buck, a bull elk, and, and this mountain goat. And, you know, my first shots were at 50, 52, and, and 70. So I think you need to be able to, um, if you can shoot accurately at longer ranges, you know, say, and when I say longer ranges, I'm coming beyond like 30 or 40. Mm -hmm. um, it just opens up your opportunities in, in out west big game hunting, I think.
Um, I don't think it's needed much that much for whitetail, but but certainly um, antelope, mule deer, you need those kind of shots. But yeah. you don't need them. But it's uh, it gives you more opportunities for sure. Yeah, man. I mean. I felt that on a mountain goat hunt last year where I had one at 75 yards, didn't have a 75-yard pin, so I had to just kind of take that one as a loss. I should have practiced more, should have got had the right equipment to hunt, uh, knowing that I was going out to that western land. But, yeah, man, I want to hear more about your mountain goat hunt. You know, what was that like physically, emotionally, you know, as far as practicing goes, and how long had you waited to draw that tag? Yeah, I think it took me 13 years or so to draw oh. that in Colorado. Um, it was amazing. I, I love the country they're in. It's, uh, you know, it's, I spent two days scouting the area, finding the mountain goats. And, um, you know, they, they like to hang out in these cliffs around 13,000 feet. It's, uh, it's amazing the terrain that they, they call home and, and thrive in. It, I, it, you know, I just loved watching them cross these cliffs. It was amazing seeing the stuff they could go through. Um, I, it's unbelievable. And yeah, the, um, the scenery, the, the country, I just, I just loved the whole thing. Um, so I scouted a couple of days, went out, um, you know, before season found, found the, the, uh, mountain goats again. And it was a big group of 19 mountain goats that were hanging out together. Um, so yeah, then, and there's a few billies uh, in there. They're pretty good. Um, I did find one other billy, you know, just kind of the days before season. It was a, uh, it was in the tops of the cliffs though. So I, it was a giant billy. I really wanted to go after him, but I just could not come up with a way to get there safely. Um, so that, that's kind of the thing that's different about mountain goats is, um, is you can't always get to them. You know, with elk, pretty much. If you see a big bull, there's some way to get to it, but with mountain goats, you really might not be able to. Um, and then the area where these these 19 were hanging out, they were um, they were in these cliffs that were where there was kind of a sh- steep shale at the bottom, and then about a thousand foot, you know, nearly vertical cliffs. They were going up into these areas and, and bedding during the day, and then they were coming down um, coming down lower, kind of feeding through these saddles in the morning and evening and then they were going back up you know the other side and some other cliffs so uh anyway i, I spent a day looking for uh, a safer easier spot to, <laughs> to <laughs> put a stock on, on one that was bedded you know going there was an area nearby where there was these nice uh kind of terraces um where there was some cliffs but a lot more grass and a lot easier hunting through there but um i i saw one nanny a couple a couple kids in there and that was about it so Anyway, I, uh, you know, it was amazing country. I was loving being back there. I, I backpacked in solo actually and camped at 12,200 feet. Um, I had a few buddies that were, uh, were supposed to come along, but you know, one of them hadn't filled, uh, his elk tag yet. He was still on a hunt and, and everyone's, um, you know, had limited vacation and, you know, and I totally understand. Um, it, it's nice to have, have somebody to share camp with back that far, um, for safety and everything, but. At the same time, I, I don't mind solo hunting. I, you know, I love being back there. And if I, if nobody else can go, it's not going to keep me from, from going after them. Um, so yeah, I had backpacked in and camped at 12,200 feet and all the hunting was up, up from there. Um, it was amazing country, but I was also thinking, man, this is going to be super difficult. Um, if I, if I get a good shot at an adult 
you know, Billy, it's, it's, uh, I'm going to take it. I'm not going to try and hold out. Cause I think, you know, with a rifle, it wouldn't have been too difficult, but with a bow, it was really going to be tough. And I, this was a rifle tag, by the way, they, um, it's easier to draw rifle tags, I believe. Um, or yeah, from, from what I've heard, this particular tag was easier to draw, which is a third rifle. Um, so that's what I was going for. And, um, so I could have used the rifle. I didn't even, I didn't even bring one along. I really wanted to use the bow and, and get one. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I saw, the, I saw this night group of 19 going to the cliffs that morning. I hunted all over in other areas looking for some, I ended up coming back to these in the evening and, um, they were down out of the cliff. So I started just working my way slowly through the rocks, through this kind of the, the creek bottom that was working up, up higher and higher into the basin, just through rocky areas and peeked over some rocks. And I, and I saw this group of 19 and I, I got lucky. I caught them right in the saddle at the low, kind of the lowest point in their, in their movement there. Um, and with 19 eyes, it was difficult. I had to wait a while till I got them all kind of in the same spot where he get behind some big rocks and, and basically crawled in. Um, dropped my pack a couple hundred yards back, um, belly crawled, oh, last 150 yards or so. Oh, it's brutal. Rock. And, uh, and, and I get over a rock, I'd, I'd ranged uh, 115 yards, nope, gotta keep going, and get to this last one where I got up and ranged, and it was 70, and I could see that I, I was running out of time as well. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I picked out the biggest one. Um, the biggest kind of longest oldest looking one and uh and took the shot and yeah i'm i'm really happy about making a good clean uh clean kill on that animal and uh, having it go down quickly um in sight man i was super excited about it yeah that's got to be pretty nerve-wracking being back there being back there all by yourself and you had you don't have any experience hunting these before so you were just completely on your own no outfit no guide you just did all this diy right and i was pretty um i'm a total amateur on mountain goats yeah mm -hmm. i mean i'd seen them before the area that i i i elk, typically elk hunt back in um in a wilderness area in the high basins you know really early on like that opening opening weekend or week or so. And so, you know, that's that area I hunt. It's a lot of times the elk are over 12,000 feet. So I'm up in that high oh, stuff wow. and I occasionally see a mountain goat in that same stuff, but that was about it. That's about my only experience. Like, yeah, I've seen a mountain goat before, but I don't really know much about them. So I read everything I could. I, I, um, you know, watched some things that Colorado parks of wildlife puts out, you know, kind of, um, to learn about mountain goats, but, um, yeah. And then I went in and scouted. It was, uh, it, it was, yeah, it was an experience for sure. And, and I'm, I'm kind of amazed that it went as well as it did because yeah, you're right. I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> but <laughs> it, uh, it can be done. The good thing is, um, very little pressure, right? There was three tags for the whole area unit. I oh was my in gosh. and I met one of the other guys. He ended up, um, he was using, uh, the longbow or recurve, I think it was a recurve, but he was using the traditional archery equipment. Um, and I didn't meet the third guy, but yeah, and he ended up taking one with a bow as well. So I know two out of three were, were taken with bows out of the three tags. So, yeah. Wow. And you know, there's in these areas where you can draw tags, there are goats there. You got to get back in. Um, they're high, you know, they like to hang out at 12,000 foot, um, plus. 
So, and there was, you know, we were right next to a 14 or where they were hanging out as well. So it's, um, you know, luckily I, I live in Colorado. I hike in the high country a lot. I was pretty well acclimated. Um, I wouldn't recommend camping at 12,200 feet to somebody who isn't used to it. Um, I know that it used to be if I camped over 11,000, I'd be a little bit out of it that first day and that just from altitude. And um, the more time I spend in the high country, the more acclimated I get to it. And I didn't feel any effects camping that high and, and hunting up higher. But, you know, in October, the weather's pretty severe in there. It was cold. I had, I mean, my feet were frozen morning and night. Um, and it was only getting hiking a ways that, uh, you know, would warm them up. The winds were really high. It, um, and they, and they flew all night. So I'm in a little one man tent and, the, and the, I kept getting w- woken up because the tent is like get laid flat on me. Yeah. And Gus. And so, yeah, I didn't sleep real well. Uh, it was cold. It's, you know, it's not nice camping or anything. It's not, uh, you, you gotta be, um, you gotta be willing to suffer a bit for sure on these hunts, but you know, keep your eye on the prize and, uh, and keep at it. Yeah. One of my, one of my friends told me, uh, you know, you can start having fun as soon as you embrace the suck that getting <laughs> up there and, and being up there sucks, but you always have that, that mountain goat Billy on, on your wall to look back to and the, the pain's temporary, I guess. But that's a, that's a once in a lifetime harvest, man. That's big time. Congratulations on that. That's cool. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah. So what, uh, you got any other upcoming hunts that you're excited about? It's probably going to be uh, pretty hard to top that one for a while. Yeah, you know, it's been a great, it's been a great year for me personally. I got a, I got a big bear in the spring in Saskatchewan. I got, I went down to Texas and shot, you know, a wild hog. I got a nice boar there. I, that's the first time I've ever done that. That was pretty fun um, with a friend. And then, yeah, I got a nice antelope buck on public land in Colorado. Um, and those, those could be really tough to get with a bow as well. And, and then, yeah, nice six point bull elk. And I was solo five miles in on that one. That one, I wish I'd had some buddies along for the pack out. <laughs> of course. Yeah, then a mountain goat. So I'm, man, I'm, I'm super happy just with this way the season's gone. I've got a mule deer tag yet in Colorado in November that I'll try and get with a bow. And then I'm going to go back. Uh, I've got four brothers that I hunt with each year. We do this brother's hunt for whitetail, either in uh, Wisconsin, um, Illinois, or Indiana, typically. And uh, this year we're going to hunt Indiana. And I might also try to get in. A hunt in um, a whitetail hunt in Wisconsin or Illinois on the way there. So, you know, mule deer and one or two whitetails yet. I'm hoping for. Yeah, still got an eventful year planned out, man. So, uh, I'm actually headed to Saskatoon. Wait, is that how you say it? Saskatoon. Sorry, Saskatoon okay. in uh, in May to hunt black bear. What time? You said in the spring. What time of the what or what month did you hunt black bear last year in Canada? Yeah, it was in May. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't remember the dates, but um, yeah, it was sometime in May. Yeah, that's that's the time time to go. There's there's kind of a window of time between, you know, when they're coming out of their dens and they're um, just not that active yet to when the crops have grown up enough and the grass has grown up enough to where they're just really hard to find. So, yep, um, I've done that the last two years, and that's been that's been a fun thing to do in, in the spring. There's there's a lot of bears up there and big bears. You know, I, I thought yeah. I knew what a big bear was. Um, I've been lucky in Colorado. I've shot bears um, two out of the last three years just while I've been 
elk hunting. Um, mm. I've carried a bear tag along and just done spot and stock on on black bears. And I got a really big one um, last year. But um, yeah, prior to that, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to hunt bears. Um, you know, I don't know. I just thought they were kind of cool animals. I was kind of rarely seeing them. And it wasn't until I started having a lot of encounters with them in Colorado um, and seeing them every year and up close um, that I finally decided, you know, I want to I want to hunt these things once. I want to give that a try. And um, I really I really enjoy it. It's um, it's challenging. It's it's just different hunting an animal that, um, you know, that. You know, you know, it could kill you if it wanted to. I mean, it's just right. being that close to an animal that has this big claws and teeth and, and all those things. It's a, it's a different experience. And I'm, I don't mean to sound like I'm a tough guy or anything. It's, it's a, it's scary, but at the same time, you are like heightened senses. You know, when I, I shot that big bear in um, Colorado and I stalked in on it to about 25 yards, it, it turned and it, I didn't realize it knew I was there. I think it knew I was coming the whole time. Um, wow. It turned and started snapping his jaws at me. And I thought, and I was at full jaw. I was like, oh man, is this thing going to charge? Um, but then it turned and kind of started circling, circling me and uh, gave me a broadside shot. And, and I took it. And that bear took off so fast. It was just a streak. And I was like, oh my God, if that would have charged at me. Um, you know, I don't think if it wants to charge at you, I don't know how you get a weapon up quick enough to, to do anything about it. I mean, those bears can be really fast. Luckily, they usually don't charge, you know, especially black bears. But um, but yeah, it can be an intense uh, situation. And um, yeah, it's something I, I never knew if I wanted to do. But at this point, I I do enjoy it. Yeah. Enjoy hunting as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it, man. I, I was up in Colorado in September going to Canada in May. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty young, so I'm trying to, trying to diversify and spend my money wisely on the species <laughs> that, uh, that I want to go chase. Cause there's plenty to, to hunt in North America, but, uh, man, I really appreciate you jumping on that podcast for anyone that wants to maybe get a pack of broadheads or check you guys out. Where's the, what's the website? What's the socials to keep up with you guys? Yeah. Our website is, um, ironwelloutfitters.com. Our social is at ironwelloutfitters. Um, and we're not an outfitter, so I'm not going to guide you <laughs> out or anything. Maybe not the best choice of, of names. Um, our products are Ironwell Broadheads. Um, we have some some ultralight knives now as well, but uh, we also sell some components, um, some component system to kind of beef up into your arrow. But yeah, you can check them out um, at our website or, or Instagram if you want to kind of see what's going on day to day. Cool, man. I'm looking. I'm looking forward to to trying some out. Uh, possibly on a black bear in Canada. I think that would be pretty cool. That'd be a great application to try them. But uh, I appreciate you jumping on again, Bill, and uh, we'll do it again sometime. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on and, and good luck. Hunter. Hey guys, thank you so much for consuming the Hunter's Advantage podcast. We really appreciate it. And we really do do the podcast for you all. And just to stay in tune with that and what you guys want to hear feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram on who you would like to see on the podcast next.